session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Delacqui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get started with the book of the week from the past week, which usually I do on Mondays, um, but I did have a guest Monday night, so a big thank you again to Dr. Jennifer Galvin, who came on the show and shared her um, article, or talked about her article in push.com, about insecurities and specifically some insecurities that she's noticed in women, how to help overcome them. So thank you to her for joining me Monday night. So today I'll talk about the book of the week from last week, but want to announce the book for this week. And it was a book I just actually got last night as a gift um, from a good friend, Vahid. So thank you so much, Vahid, for this gift. He got me uh, Kobe Bryant's book that he wrote himself, Kobe Bryant, The Mamba Mentality how I play. So I'm looking forward to reading it. I actually have not read the book. So it was very kind of him to give me that. And so um, I wanted to actually read it as soon as possible. So I'll start that today and share it with you next week on Monday's show. Uh, But the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. Uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin is Associate Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. And this was a fantastic book, a book that, uh, I mean, at least for me, I can say, made me aware of things or made me think about things in a way I hadn't before. And I've shared that on this show before, how, of course, I enjoy the books I read and they tend to add to my, hopefully, knowledge or understanding of different concepts and issues. But every so often, a book will make me aware of something and almost creates a paradigm shift in how you think about things or makes you aware of something you didn't even know you were unaware of. And this book did that. So um, the book is looking at how we might think of technology and advancements in technology in a way that is race neutral or think that because we're creating, uh, let's say, AI, the AI is neutral. And so because of that, it won't be racist or sexist or have these other social ills that we might think we humans might have. So we humans might have biases, but the machines won't. But of course, um, if we realize that the humans are making the machines, they're making the algorithms, they're making the codes, it's going to be affected by those very same human biases and influences and societal and cultural influences as well. And so we have to be very aware that as much as we might look at technology as a way of just fixing and curing all of society's ills, if we're not careful, it can actually further perpetuate, reinforce, and make racist and sexist tendencies even stronger. And to me, that was it was very eye-opening to read this book to get that 
perspective. Um, to give an example of how this plays out, I think it was Microsoft in 2016 came out with an AI bot called Tay that was going to be on Twitter and was going to learn from communicating with people how to um, you know, be, talk with humans or communicate. And within, I think, one day, it was saying some very racist and sexist things and saying things like denying the Holocaust and uh, being very mean to people. And so they had to shut it down because it definitely did not go as planned. And she shares several examples of that in the book too, where things didn't go as planned in a similar vein. Uh, but it just shows that when you put something that you think is neutral, first of all, it probably isn't neutral because when humans create something, it gets affected by those biases we have. But secondly, if you put that, even if it's a neutral thing in biased waters, it absorbs those biases and becomes biased itself. So if you put something that even seems to be neutral into that type of context, um, it absorbs those things. And it's interesting because sometimes analogies are made between these types of AI and deep learning and children. And we see the same thing happen with our kids. Um, essentially, our kids come to this world not feeling the way we do about racism and sexism and race and sex and all those other factors and ways we divide ourselves, but they absorb that from their families and their culture and society at large. And over time, they, they can be that way as well or take those to be given. So um, it, it was a very interesting book in helping me to see the different ways that we might not be aware that technology gets affected by what's around it in ways we might not have imagined. So even uh, talking about the book itself and the title, there's race after technology, but she also introduced a concept called the new gym code, which um, is in a way a play on the new Jim Crow. So first uh, we'd have to look at what Jim Crow even is. So Jim Crow, you maybe have heard about the Jim Crow laws or Jim, the Jim Crow South. Um, the way the name came about, as she mentions in the book, is that Jim Crow was first introduced as a title, a character of an 1832 minstrel show. And so minstrel shows were these shows where um, white actors would act as black individuals, African-American individuals, and in very mocking and derogatory ways, which of course contributed to um, and further solidified the, the stereotypes that made black people seem as less than. And so this is one of the reasons why, and I think one of the main reasons why, when you hear people talk about blackface and there's such a negative reaction towards that, it's because it calls back to these um, very hurtful, harmful shows where whites were mocking blacks, and that's why it is uh, unacceptable. And so Jim Crow is a name of one of the characters in, in these shows, and so it's used later as a way to mock, but also to mark space, and then it's taken on in a way, um, a life of its own, as being the way of describing the, as she puts it, um, an academic shorthand for legalized racial segregation, oppression, and injustice in the U.S. South between the 1890s and the 1950s. So we hear that Jim Crow, uh, that's where that comes from. But also, she says the new Jim Code, um, and as she points out, this relates to a wonderful book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow. So that's, in a way, the old Jim Crow. But the new Jim Crow is currently how, uh, in the United States, the prison system is used to create, as she calls it, Michelle Alexander says, a new racial caste system. 
by taking people who are overwhelmingly people of color and making them essentially second-class citizens, but saying not because of race we're doing this, but because of uh, criminality, because they're quote-unquote criminals, but this itself is biased in the way that we define and even find, essentially, you can say, who the criminals are, which is not unbiased. So it can be a lot easier to say, no, we're not prejudiced or racist um, against any particular group. We're just against crime and making sure we are safe. But we know that there's huge biases in the legal system in who is targeted, who is uh, under surveillance, and then who gets arrested, and even the ways they're treated after arrest, the whole um, system from beginning to end. And so the new Jim Code is how there could be uh, racist tendencies in uh, tech industry and tech codes and things that are brought about that we have to be aware of. We'll use um, Ruha Benjamin's own words. So she says, what I call the new Jim Code, uh, the employment of new technologies that reflect and reproduce existing inequities, but that are promoted and perceived as more objective or progressive than the discriminatory systems of a previous era. And um, that's a, in a way a technical definition, but as you read the book, it makes more and more sense when you see the different ways that this is illustrated. So to begin with, uh, she shares about the first beauty AI contest. So it was promoted as the first time that AI was going to be used to determine who's the winner of a beauty contest. And so it was thought that, okay, this is going to be an unbiased, objective approach to looking at who's the most beautiful, whereas other contests have human judges, which are going to have the biases of society. And so this will be the first time we can have that. Unfortunately, um, what they found was that although they thought it would be unbiased because the AI would be doing um, something called deep learning to learn what's the, what is beautiful, what isn't, um, and they thought it would be objective, all 44 winners across the various age groups except six were white and only one finalist had visibly dark skin. So even though it was touted to be, in essence, quote-unquote colorblind, uh, clearly it wasn't true. It was still holding on to those biases and the people who created the codes themselves were shocked and embarrassed and um, realized that it wasn't exactly what they sought or what they thought it was going to be but essentially we see how without even knowing it they somehow were coding or um, creating a system that further perpetuated the already standards of beauty that can prefer things like lighter skin to darker skin and, and what is unfortunate is that when people see something like this fortunately uh, quickly they realized the creators themselves that this was not okay well they might think if it's ai if it's machine learning this is now unbiased this is now somehow more true than the human biases and it could make it seem like okay then this is actually the reality and this is a huge problem because when we use the technology in this way to further reinforce a stereotype, not realizing that it's because we've already given it these biases, it could actually give credence or make people who think in racist ways or society at large who sees things in a racist way, that there's something true about that. Um, we also see this when laws are changed, for example, and let's say I use the analogy 
last week that if Iranian Americans were not allowed to hold government jobs because they didn't think it was safe for them to be holding government jobs because they might be terrorists. And this was in the society at large for a long time. And of course, that's going to affect the way people would see Iranian Americans. And then they say, you know what? We're going to change the law. And now they can get those jobs. So they can apply now. Now, of course, when they're applying for those same jobs and there's been a system in place for years that has seen them as not safe, as bad, as less than, as all those types of things. Of course, when people are hiring who to pick between them and a non-Iranian American, they're probably more likely to choose the non-Iranian American. And now they'll say, see, even it's legal for them to get the jobs, but they still don't get them. This shows somehow their inferiority or that they're dangerous or that they're not safe. And so um, it confirms or quote unquote confirms what was already believed to be true, not realizing that because the system itself still wasn't fixed at a deeper level, it just perpetuated that. So it might seem like an advance, just like we talk about technological advancement, but it actually might further perpetuate the same standards that were held before. And my example that I just shared might seem a little bit far-fetched or like fantasy, but um, it's actually much closer to reality than you might think. Uh, she talks about early in the book, a classic study of how names uh, can impact people's experience on the job market. And done, there's a lot of research that has been done on this. And they found that, uh, this is quoting from the book, all other things being equal, job seekers with white sounding first names received 50% more callbacks from employers than job seekers with black sounding names which is incredible, 50%. And they said they calculated that the racial gap was equivalent to eight years of relevant work experience, which white applicants did not actually have. And the gap persist, persisted across occupations, industry, employer size, even when employers included the equal opportunity clause in their ads. So we see that it's not some kind of um, imagine, imaginary thing that we see or can think of. And I'm glad studies like that exist. Of course, I'm not happy that the results show that even though that's the reality but we want to see that reality uh, but i'm ha not happy that is the reality because it does make it more real because i think people can think oh you know people say there's racism or there's sexism but there those things don't really exist if you really want to do it you can make it and then there's always the the ways that people will say well look at beyonce or look at obama people who have made it or oprah then that shows that the system is not racist, not realizing that when you have so few people to choose from and they stand out in the way that they do, it almost points to the fact that the system is not fair to give everyone an equal shot. Uh, the book has so much more that I want to talk about. I'm already at the first commercial break. So I'm going to talk a bit more about this book after the break. Again, it's Ruha Benjamin's book, Race After Technology. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continue the discussion on the book Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. Um, and what's also interesting to note, as she mentions, the book is that it doesn't have to mean, uh, if we're talking that racism can be uh, embedded in the technology or that the technology itself might become racist. You might even hear things like racist bots or are robots racist or sexist, things like that. It, it doesn't have to mean that the people creating the code are intentionally trying to be racist or want to be harmful or hurt people and are trying to make that part of their system. But it just showed that when we have a racist 
society or environment, when you put something in that environment, it's going to uh, absorb those types of values and reflect them back. Uh, and also what can be dangerous is the, um, at times, unawareness of what is the default and not even realizing that it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, so let me explain that a little bit with some of the examples that come up in the book. For example, she shares um, about this black and white friend who are, in a way they laugh about it, but I think they're in a hotel, and they see that the soap dispenser, the automatic soap dispenser, works for the white friend, but not for the black friend. And they kind of laugh about that, but uh, later when it comes to the attention of the company that makes the soap dispenser, they say that there's something like the infrared light or sensor that reflects off, reflects easier off of white skin than dark skin or the, you know, something to that effect, um, which in a way can seem benign, but it does bring to our attention the fact that the white skin is considered the default. And so when they were developing this technology, they were thinking of white hands as the ones who would need the soap or who would be using this product, not of all people who could be possibly using that. And so this default of white is something that we at times can take for granted in places like the United States where we just think of that. And I actually was reading the book and I thought about, um, and I'd have to be honest, if someone said when I think of, you know, someone says that person's American, oh yeah, she's American or he's American, the first thing that does come to my mind is a white person. That's in a way the default that I would have to recognize. Of course, if I thought about it or really want to think about it, I would think of as American uh, about the diversity and it could be so many different things. I myself am Iranian American and consider myself American, even though uh, my name is not very American, which I, I might touch on as well because she has some interesting uh, thoughts on that and something she shares earlier in the book. Um, but that is, in a way, the default that we don't even re realize is the default. And it, until it's brought to our awareness, we see that that way of white being normal or white being the expected place we're starting with, we don't see how that can have negative effects. So I was talking about the names. She mentions that an exercise she'll do in some of her classes is to have people talk about their names. And she even, I think, plays some clip or like a documentary or something about names and there's actually people that are like naming consultants that help people pick a name in a way because our names can be a part of our brand or our branding which might seem funny and she said people tend to laugh when they see that part where consultants are helping parents pick their baby's names as i mentioned um, if you have a black sounding name that might make it less likely that you get a callback for an interview or get called to have an interview in the first place. And so that of course means that it does affect the outcomes you're going to experience, just your name alone. So that default of whiteness is something that we at times take for granted and at times tech companies will take for granted. They won't realize that they are using that as the default and this can further um, perpetuate and reinforce racist tendencies that exist in a society. So that soap dispenser one was one example. Also, there's some very sad, uh, you know, and even saying it is sad to say, I think it was Google images or Google photos where it tagged a few people that were darker skinned as I think gorillas or something like that. So it was not even as human. And we can just think this is a, a glitch. And she talks about that, how 
there are these glitches sometimes in the system and we think of them first as glitches in the technology oh you know the the technology just doesn't pick up on black faces the way it picks up on white faces or it tends to have this type of uh, a bias and we're going to fix that glitch but as she points out those quote-unquote glitches that show up in the technology that we think of as somehow a, a mistake or something that's just an error that the system is doing might actually be showing us in a very clear way the glitches or the inequity that exists in society where some groups are considered less than or are not even considered or are not seen in some ways and overly seen in other ways, um, but that can affect the way they are treated. So rather than thinking of them just as, oh, that's a glitch, you know, we did the the beauty contest and more white winners were, were there, but that was just a glitch in the system. Well, maybe it makes us realize a inequity in the system that needs to be looked at rather than just something in the code was a problem. And I thought that was um, quite interesting. And so we have to think about the technology not just as something neutral and to just let it go. Some people think we can't affect technology or that it kind of has a life of its own. And to some degree it does, but that doesn't mean we can't have an effect on it. I think this is true of all technologies. If you're creating something that can be used in a weaponized way, you have to be mindful of releasing that technology or how it is released. You can't just think, well, I'm advancing science or technology, so um, I have to just do whatever I can do to advance it. We do have to be aware of how that technology can be used in good and bad ways. And similarly, when it comes to our tech, as in um, more cyber type of tech, we have to be aware of that also. What are we doing? How are we affecting things? And she shares uh, about a lot of different groups that are looking at these types of things to create accountability to be aware of how new technology is either combating the racist system that already exists or further perpetuating that, maybe even reinforcing that. An example of how something can reinforce that is uh, there's technology or tech out there that's trying to help police forces determine crime areas. And so, of course, when you use the crime statistics that already exist to feed it into the system, which already is going to look at areas that have more poverty and individuals of color tend to live in those areas more as the crime areas. And then you put it into the system and the system says, oh, look, here are the crime areas and here's where you have to be careful. And it seems like the system is quote unquote working, but all it's doing is amplifying and further reinforcing what is already assumed to be true, which already reflects the racist uh, system that exists, not actually finding some new type of uh, technolo technological advancement. It's just a new way of being racist, a new way, maybe a more fancy way or a way that feels more advanced as far as the technology, but the ideology and the inequity is still old. And that's something that what won't happen to change or won't change just by having new tech. We have to go a little bit deeper than that to change the system as a whole and the racist values that exist before the technology can somehow save us. And so she has a chapter called, I think it's technological benevolence, right? Um, yeah, technological benevolence and how we have to actually be mindful of this and aware of the ways that we might think of tech as a savior. Okay, we're so biased as humans, we have sexism, we have racism, but 
we're going to create this AI that's going to save us. And really it doesn't work. It might have to be a little bit more the other way around that we first change us and then the technology will follow, but also that we have to be aware of the technology we're creating in a way, working hand in hand with that um, to shape how the direction it goes in. And she shares lots of different groups and organizations that are doing exactly that to try to combat this, to audit technology, so to speak, and do different things to be aware of ways that it might not even recognize it's being racist or perpetuating racism. Um, you know, late, I talked about the crime statistics that are used and the ways that police are then told that these are the high crime areas. And actually, I, what I remember from uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, when you look at things like drug use, as far as who's using drugs and how much, it's pretty much equal across all cultures or ethnicities, race. But when you look at who's in jail for drug-related issues, it's not even close. I don't remember the statistics, so I, I can't give those offhand. Um, the amount of, uh, the proportion of black and brown people who are in jail for drug-related issues. So here we can see that inequity. If an equal number of people are committing this crime, um, but way more people of some group is in jail for that same crime, something is not okay. And that has to be looked at. And so uh, related to that, she shares at the very end of the book, this, um, as she calls it, a parody project that creates uh, a white collar crime risk zone. And so it is funny, but as I'll talk about, even that part that it's funny does reflect some things about society. But basically what it does is it maps out um, different areas where it's more likely for white collar crime, you know, things like fraud uh, to be happening um, and also uses facial recognition type of softwares or uh, profile photos. And so it used 7,000 corporate executives downloaded from the popular professional networking site, LinkedIn, that's from the book, um, to give you an idea of where you should be looking out for these potential white collar criminals. And so it's funny in a way, but as I mentioned, that funniness or how it makes us laugh also shows how unfair the system is because we think, oh, this is kind of funny, it's okay. But when you think of white collar crime, it oftentimes is as harmful as different types of crime. It can have huge consequences on people's lives. And I've talked about this before, how it's usually more in the, um, the motivation is more greed than anything else. Whereas oftentimes people who are living in poverty and commit crime, there's much more necessity in that crime. But yet we definitely look more harshly upon the, the people who are poor and committing crimes than people who are rich and committing crimes which itself reflects an inequity in our systems that goes very deep. But this app, is it's kind of funny, but also does, I think, feel good. Part of the humor might also be that this feeling of justice that, okay, now other people get to see what it feels like, even though they really don't get to see what it feels like because there's no actual consequences they face, but of being the targeted ones, of being the ones that are, are looked down on. And that's something else she has a, a chapter about exposure, but how in some ways technology can make Black people feel invisible because they're not seen, not picked up. The soap detector doesn't recognize them. But also when it comes to things like surveillance and a crime, they're hyper-visible or they can't have any privacy. And so there's this paradox that they experience. But anyway, I will wrap up there, but um, couldn't highly recommend this book highly enough because it's so eye-opening to see the ways that 
technology, which we think of as this benign and also benevolent type of a force that's going to just make life better and society better and make us more equal, uh, can actually be having the opposite effect. It might be further reinforcing the types of discriminatory biases that already exist. And so it does give a lot of information of how that's happening, what has happened, but also some guidance on what can be done and what is being done to combat that as well. So I really enjoyed this book and hope you'll check it out. It's Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, thanks for calling. You're welcome. Hi, Dr. Farid. Yes, this hi. This is Kalpana. Thanks and for... we have been speaking earlier as well regarding my daughter. We call, I, I called from Sydney and uh, you guided us what to do, basically. Oh, very nice. Now, I think I remember. Uh, yes, go ahead. Yes. Now, uh, as you know, I have a daughter. She's three and a half. And I have Sorry, a go ahead. She's how old? She is three and a half. Three and, and a my half. My son is one and a half. Okay, got it. Right. And uh, sort of based on your your direction, she started to go daycare. And now my son, he also has joined daycare too. Okay. Uh, what we have found with my son is he is very, way too active. And we have noticed he hits a lot. Uh-huh. And he sort of aims that if, if he has to hit somebody and we stop him, he finds the opportunity to hit the person next again. Hmm. And... Uh, so, like, he sort of goes chest out and he sort of aims for it. And he's sort of like a boss baby in school. They call him boss baby. He eats everybody's food. He drinks everybody's water and he pulls hair. He's just basically like, uh, like I can't control him, sort of. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I I don't know what we have done wrong with him. That <laughs> well, let's, he sort of let me like, stop you there. You necessarily haven't done something wrong with him. Um, that, you know, and because also what he's doing is not so wrong. Uh, even you say we can't, and you, you know, it's interesting, you say you can't control him, but my guess is you can't control yourself completely either. So the expectation that you're going to control him is already a bad place to start. You know? I didn't mean it in that way. Sort of like we believe in a lot of freedom. No, what okay. I meant was like, how do we, how do we calm him down or not, hit, yeah. not to hit? Because he hits his sister, he bites us. He mm-hmm. sort of, um, he hurts us, like, you know, in, in biting when, and my daughter, she starts crying and she doesn't want to play with him. Yeah. So, in that sense. Well, you know, I mean, I, so I don't want to also say nothing can be going on, but kids at this age will bite and hit. They can't really communicate much. They also have feelings they can't quite keep under control and they're going to express it in different ways. And so one thing, I when I work with parents a lot, uh, they might freak out about their kids. They say, oh, he's hitting or she's biting. And they think, does that mean they're going to keep being this way or reflect something about their adult life? And so we don't have to be worried that if your kid bites now, they're going to turn into a vampire when they're older. They're going to keep biting people. You know, this is kids bite. You know, every person you know has probably bit someone when they were a kid. It's just kind of something we do. It's a way of expression when you don't have a lot more to express and don't know how to deal with it. Now, is your son more angry is your son have more aggression going on that i obviously can't say for sure um but we don't want to already start pathologizing him or telling saying he's you know even the way you said what did we do wrong 
means that there's some big problem or something is really wrong with him when maybe there isn't necessarily something really wrong with him. Now, we do want to be aware of when he's biting and hitting. We can't tell him that's okay or we don't ignore it, but we don't want to also make it seem like something is really bad with him or wrong with him because the way you judge his actions might even have a bigger impact on what on him than what you're talking about right now of him being, let's say, a little more aggressive than other kids. Right. What happened was because we know that their kids, they can't communicate with us and they, they do things when they're frustrated. But yeah. the thing is, what's happening now is the parents, like other playgroups, are sort of keeping us away now because mm. he's... Yeah, so in, in that sense, like, we don't want to be isolated and oh, all yeah. the other friends are playing and nobody wants to play with us. Sure. So, well, that's interesting you said us. Down, down. <laughs> it's interesting you, no, you said no one wants to play with us, which is interesting. I mean, it's about, it's your son that we're looking at, right, if he, he gets to play with them or not. Um, but I could see, but what you said with us, it does reflect is that as a parent, I understand it's easy to say don't care about what people think or what other parents say, but you do feel something when your kid is the one who other parents are looking at as acting out or doing something they don't like, all parents yes. will feel something about that. Now, we want to minimize how much we let that impact us. Um, you know, we don't want to... Our, your priority is your son. Now, if another mom or dad doesn't like what your son is doing or is giving you some kind of attitude, you can be aware of where they're coming from, but your priority is going to be your son and making sure he's okay rather than making sure we look good in front of him, the other yes, the parent definitely. or whatever. Yeah. So we want to make sure that. that's good. I'm happy to hear that. But you're right. We want to be aware of this because, you know, it could affect even how your son feels when he sees that kids don't want to play with him or, um, you know, other kids will play with the other kids, but not with him. That could affect him. We want to be mindful of that. So, of course, when we're helping him to deal with this, it's, of course, out of love for him that we know it can negatively impact him, that he's not going to feel good or have good experiences if he hits or bites a lot. It does happen with kids. Um, but we want to make sure he's not negatively impacted by that. So, of course, the mindset is always important to have. Now, in the home, there's some things we can look at. Is there any fighting or arguing tension that is happening in the home? No. Definitely not. Definitely not. So things are calm. Yes, very calm. My husband and I, if we have to discuss anything, we discuss in the bedroom, not in front of the kids. That's the very first rule okay. we have made as a family. Okay. And then how long have you noticed, you know, when you say he's been more aggressive, how long have you noticed that? Um, ever since he, sort of like four, five months ago, since he turned one year old. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, ever since he was on his foot, when he could sort of run and that was it. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of everything. Okay. And, you know, also this expectation we can have uh, on, let's say, sharing, where you said, you know, he takes kids' toys. I get that that can create a problem and then the other kid wants their toy and we can't just let him take people's toys. But we can yeah. understand at one and a half, he just sees something he wants, he wants it. He doesn't have this long-term way of thinking about it. Well, that's not mine or maybe I wouldn't like it if that was my toy, so I won't grab that toy. We can't have that expectation from him to really understand those things at this point, you know? Yeah. I did not get that bit. Sorry. Oh, I was uh, saying, well, you know, we can't have that expectation that when he, you said earlier that he's aggressive with uh, kids' toys or things and he'll go grab it. Um, and what I was saying is that we can't expect for him at this age to understand 
that that is in a way wrong, you know, that, oh, you know, that's yeah. someone else's toy or try to put myself in that kid's shoes. How would I feel if that was my toy? And he's not going to get that yet. Slowly, we want him to get to, to recognize those things, but we can't have that expectation that at one and a half, he's going to think about those things, you know? Right. So what, what I'm doing now is when he sort of hits and in, in sort of bites, I go down to his level and I'm sort of, because we meditate and we, we see the psychologist and all, not, not recently we sort of stopped, but we, uh, we try to do calm parenting and I go uh-huh. down to his level and I look in his eyes and I sort of, we try to say no very less. So I like shake, like you know, sort of with my finger and I indicate that no hitting, we do nazi, we do gentle, we don't hit and bite. Uh-huh. But still, and I know he understands that no and, and all that, but he still would go and, and hit the person, like he would mark the person. And uh-huh. it happened, it didn't happen just once, it had, had happened like a lot of times. And this is my only concern, it's just, um, as a mother, because I want him to play out with, and he's very social. He's so funny. He laughs. He giggles. He sort of he even he would try to make us laugh. He has his dead attitude, but <laughs> in that sense, it's just that worrying that nobody would want to be his friend. And he, I mean, I can't be playing with him always. No. And, yeah, we of course he needs to have friends that are his age, um, of course. And this is again what I meant by not going too far ahead that okay he's going to be this aggressive abrasive kid and adult his whole life just because he's a little bit aggressive now it could be that he is a little bit more excitable or a little bit more um you know you intense or sensitive even that he feel things feels things more uh, strongly than other kids so he expresses it more strongly and obviously i'm sure you're keeping an eye on him and we'll keep an eye on him as he's developing but i don't want you to get so far ahead because what parents can do is when they think far ahead like that they think my kid's going to be this way that way so we feel like we have to stop the thing now and then we put so much pressure on the kid to stop doing something now when it might be unrealistic or that pressure itself is hurting the kid so for example you think you see him Uh, hitting another kid and in your mind you go ahead it's 10 years from now he's 11 he has no friends he's alone he feels this he feels that and then you say okay i gotta get him to stop hitting kids now because that's gonna uh, it's gonna become this big problem rather than being able to stay in the moment with him of okay he's a little bit angry he doesn't know how to play he got excited or he got frustrated by the kid and that's how he reacted yes it's not a, a great way to deal with frustration but at this age that's how he's dealing with it um, and also something else you mentioned is he hears you say no, and he knows what no means, which maybe he does. It might not be so clear to him, but even if it is, a lot of times parents will say this, they'll say, you know, I told my son or my daughter, uh, to not do this. And she realized it was wrong, but she did it again. And they're shocked. Like, this is unbelievable. Can you believe it? They know it's wrong and they did it again. And again, I ask you to tell yourself, as I can say to myself, how many times have you known something you're doing wasn't the best thing, but you still did it. And then you did it again. Right. We all have whatever our issues are. I know that he's he's little and they, yeah. they forget things and they don't know. Or not even just forget like things. He might easy. he might even know it's wrong and he still does it. You know, you might say, yeah. even when he's older, don't touch that, you know, toy, but he just really wants it and he goes and grabs it. He even knows he yeah, maybe gets in trouble. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but even, it's, even as adults, you know, we know that too. Everyone every day is not making optimal choices of everything they do from how they spend their time, what they eat, if they exercise, how they, uh, you know, talk to people or constantly doing things that aren't, the right thing and we know they're wrong and we're even adults so it's just that reminder that how could you know i told him no why did he go do it again or being shocked by that okay i said no but it's still hard for him to resist doing the thing 
he was doing, or even know and your reactions to it could start to become, I don't want to say game, but in a way a game where that he sees that it creates a reaction out of you. He might intentionally do the things you don't like because he sees how much of a reaction you get, you know? So these things are, are complicated and I don't want you to think of how do we get this hitting out of him or how do we get this biting out of him? It's not something that's just going to change. As I said, it could be part of his character that he's more excitable and it comes out in this way. And maybe that'll never change. It doesn't mean he'll always be biting and hitting. As he gets older, he might learn how to deal with it or how to cope with it and how to express it in different ways. But for me, what's so important with parents is to never make their kids feel bad about who they are. Yeah, he hits. We don't oh, let him not. hit. Okay, we good. not. We're so proud of them. Good. We, we love them so much for who they are. Good, and, good. Uh, and, and believe me, Doctor, we know that that's how kids are. They, they don't understand. They will repeat stuff. Mm-hmm. But... What I'm saying is when I tell him no, he sort of goes back and he <laughs> aims the person. So that is my concern. Like, you know, he aims it. I just hope that he wouldn't be a, a person who would mock somebody for something. Mm-hmm. And well, you're, So you're worried he'll become like a bully? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, you know, him being a bully or not... Um, I mean, there's no you know, way I can say for sure he won't be or you do this and he won't be. But it's going to be less about this type of, uh, you know, his aggression and the way you almost feel like it's targeted. So he goes back to that person um, and more about how you make him one feel about himself. Not to say that every bully has to have low self-esteem in this kind of cliched way that we t- sometimes think about it. But that can be part of it. But also as he starts to get older and understands connecting with other people having empathy and feeling other people's feelings, not wanting to hurt one another. There's so much that's going to happen from now until the age that he really could start bullying kids that you guys will also do with him of getting him to realize the importance of kindness and the importance of dealing with people in certain ways. And again, that's why I don't want you to jump ahead that when you see him looking like a bully at one and a half, you then project 10 years forward and imagine him as a bully in, you know, elementary school and middle school. It doesn't mean that, you know, I, I don't, have some research in front of me, but I don't think it's okay. Kids that were that bit were definitely the kids that were then bullying later on. Um, if there is aggression in the home, if you show him that uh, the way to interact with people is that when you have power over them, you put them down, or if you feel bad about yourself, you put other people down, he's going to get so many messages from uh, you and his father and in the family about how to treat and not treat people that I don't want you to get so far ahead. He's, he's a year and a half. At a year and a half, we all did all sorts of things, biting and this and wetting ourselves and so many things that we don't do as adults. That doesn't mean if we did that at one and a half, we're going to be that type of adult as we get older. So, you know, take a little bit of that pressure off yourself that we have to get this out of him or change his behavior. I get it already at school. It doesn't feel good. And I would hope the parents can be understanding, but I get it. You know, they're trying to protect their kids too, and they don't want them to get hurt. And so they put them away. Um, and Maybe you don't have this feeling, but for a lot of parents, they can feel like how their kids behave is such a strong reflection on them and who they are and who they are as parents that they can get insecure and feel all sorts of things. And even that can turn into anger towards your kid, even unconsciously. Why did you make me look bad in front of those parents? You know, you're making me look like a bad parent or a neglectful parent, or maybe now they're going to think there's fighting and whatever you, you know, you might feel inside. And then you could take that out on your son. So be aware of those feelings that can come up over time. If this continues, which it might, um, that you don't in some way take that out on him. 
because I know you consciously wouldn't do that from what you're expressing, but you could even unconsciously start to do that because you'll be upset with him for how he makes you feel around other kids and around other parents. There's a few more things about him. He gets bored very quickly. I mean, I know that's how little kids are. Like, yeah. So I sort of tried to see that if he... Uh, we we tried to do no television for him, and mm-hmm. my daughter only watches television when he's sleeping. So it's like 30 minutes or mm-hmm. one hour kind of thing. But mm-hmm. uh, So one day I tried to put him in front of, te- of the television. He, he watches for like five minutes, and then he walks away. Okay. So then he comes and... And with other toys as well, he would get bored very quickly. But recently, we noticed he loves to play with balls. So we are sort of uh, having balls everywhere in the car, in the house, mm-hmm. and uh, relative house. So at least he's he's busy with that. Okay. So is it normal for them to sort of lose interest very quickly? Because my daughter was totally different, and yeah. I know kids are different. Exactly. I mean, I think you you seem to be very you know, knowledgeable on child development and different things and kids are different. It's funny. I mean, I know you didn't mean it in this way, but um, parents, you know, they can get worried about everything, but obviously most time parents worry about kids watching too much TV, but you're worried about your son not watching enough TV. You're like, no, no, sit down more, watch more television. But, you know, he maybe gets bored of it and that's okay. He maybe is not getting what's happening or and less is definitely more when it comes to screen time for kids. So the less he's actually seeing the screen is going to be better. Um, but it's we, hard to we say. Have, we're planning yeah. no screen time till he's okay. two. Okay. But I was just trying to see if... if What's his, his reaction? Yeah. I would get some some peace, like, you know, because he's behind me always. He's doing something yeah. and, and he pulls me. And so I sort of thought, let me try what, what yeah. he does. Just you five minutes day and then he walks away. Okay, well, that's fine. You know, and, and we don't know. We don't want to draw some clear conclusions yet because he's one and a half and there's different expectations of course at different ages it could be he's a little bit more hyper or like i said a little bit more um, excitable we'll see time will tell and even if that's the case it's not something we can take out of him but maybe he'll enjoy physical activities more and he needs a little bit more of that to get it out or to express that energy in himself we'll see you're saying he likes we even do that we go gymnastics we we do play groups we go dancing, library, rhyme time. So Monday to Friday is fully booked, and Sundays we do swimming. So every day there's something happening, and I think it's getting too much on me as well, since like <laughs> I'm on my feet every day. Yeah. So, so in that sense. Now, the other thing, Doctor, I wanted to know was, my husband and I, we talk about it, and I see that he is more into physical activities. I was thinking, should we take him to martial arts when he's three? Now I know he's too little, but sort of I wanted because I know he has this lot of abundance of energy in him, mm-hmm. and he sort of wants to hit and all. So should three years, uh, do, should they do martial arts, or five years is appropriate age? Because there's no age mentioned when should yeah. he start martial arts. I, I sort of wanted him to learn discipline through mm-hmm. martial arts. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the right uh, thing. if it's something, you know, as is going to be the case with whatever activities you introduce for either of your kids, that he seems to like it and enjoy it and wants to do it. I don't, I think there's some things I actually do like about martial arts. I know for some people it's associated with violence because you think of hitting and, but really the martial arts are very, as you mentioned, focus on discipline and even, um, the philosophy very often is not about, you know, learning these techniques to hurt people, but more about protecting yourself and defending others. So it's more about using it in the the right way, not to respect, and always to respect your opponent, respect whoever you, you are dealing with. So those can be some good philosophies i feel in your voice i know you care about him a lot and you're concerned about him a lot there's a strong anxiety about 
how he is. And you're going to have to see, you know, we don't have to plan out. We're not going to, me and you right now, plan out his next, uh, you know, seven, 16 and a half years until he's 18. And then he starts martial arts at this age and he's going to start music at this age. I mean, it's things to, you know, be aware of, but you're going to have to see how it goes. If you take him to karate and he hates it, we're not going to say, no, we said in our schedule for him, he's going to do karate for five years. So he has to go. You know, we don't have to keep forcing him to go to that. He might find, he might like organized team sports more, or he might like this more. And we want to give him that space. But already, I feel like you're treating it as there's this big problem that we have to figure out how to deal with. Of course, we want to recognize our kids and see how they are, who they are, what they're like, and and make sure we parent them in a way that meets their individual needs for who they are. Um, but we don't want to get too worried and bogged down on What's, what's going to happen when he's five? It's almost like you want to get this excess energy out of him, but part of that might be who he is, and it's going to be in I don't him. want to, believe me. I love, because I know I'm, I'm half active as well, and so okay. is my husband. Okay. So, But we don't know what we, we did when we were little, so I'm just trying to find ways to sort of be engaged in. And when, uh-huh. when you mentioned sort of like if we, we don't push him to do martial arts, we don't do that because with cool. my daughter... She was dancing, and then suddenly she said, we don't want to dance. So we, we simply stopped. And now suddenly she says, I want to dance. So we, we, we do consider their feelings. Good, very good. And so, yeah. Um, so basically, is there any readings I can do in, in regards to excitable kids, or is there any books that you suggest I should mm, read? Just, I don't know, and hug them a lot, kiss them a lot. <laughs> I don't really have a book in mind, but when you keep talking about them, you can, you can't see my face, but I make this face when I think of like cute kids and the things you're talking about. It's very sweet, and you're 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 doing a lot of the right things. You're caring a lot. You guys are both, you and your husband, p- putting the right type of attention. The only thing is you might put too much pressure and attention on you and the kids. So even for me, when I'm hearing you talk, of course, I, I'm, no book comes to mind right now. I'm sure there are ones out there. Um, but if anything, I'm more worried about you getting too involved and too much trying to fix things rather than being a little bit more hands-off and letting it happen too. So it's, of course, we're not neglecting or ignoring what's happening. But for you, I don't see that at all being a risk. For me, it's more that you might get too involved and try to do too much and say okay we gotta you know he's hyper so what do we do starting now to get his hyperness to be funneled in the right way it's just you know we're gonna see we're gonna keep an eye on it see how he's doing and and go from there but don't worry too much don't when you notice yourself going too far ahead try to come back to now okay okay i have one more question i know i have very like less time (laughs) yeah we went over the break for yeah go ahead go ahead it's just briefly um i just want to know for inner peace and inner happiness is it okay (laughs) To stay away from some family members that you're seeing is like hurting you and harming you. In, in, because what happened is, um, I know that my kid has to be, my children has to be engaged with them. But when I see that a lot of negative energy is coming towards from them, is it okay hmm. for the family to sort of like yeah, come about, back for some time? That's an interesting question. So what about this? Let's. I'm going to put you on hold because we are way over the commercial break to begin with. And that might be a bigger topic. It seems more about you, but related to the kids. So I'm going to put you on hold and let's talk after the break. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Duloc. We will be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we were with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. So um, before the break, we talked a lot about your kids. You have a three and a half year old daughter and one and a half year old son. Uh, But before the break, you mentioned something about family members and the negative energy or feeling you can have around them and trying to figure out how to deal with that. But we just started that so you can let me know 
um, what you had in mind. Okay, um, I was just like saying that I know it's it's very important for my kids to be around family members and they grow up with their cousins. And but what happened is um, I feel that I sort of get a few bit of negative energy from them and. It's sort of because I, I get upset very quickly. I mean, and I know about this mm-hmm. about myself. So well, I, now, I've been ever, working on it. We do miss. you ever bite or hit them when you get? No, no, no. We, we, that, <laughs> I don't know if you got. I, I was making a joke about your son. How you're worried about him biting and, and hitting when uh, he gets older. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think you actually were biting or hitting your family members. But you've noticed you get upset <laughs> when you're around them. No. Okay. So. Um, so yeah, and um, is it okay for inner peace, like that's what my question is, is it okay that for you to be happy and be calm, is it okay to not totally eliminate them, be around them, but occasionally, and my my children see them occasionally too, rather than having frequent visits, and that's when the tension sort of arises. Well, I mean, there's... Because I don't want to name anybody. No, and, you, no we don't need to name, that's actually, I'd rather we don't anyway, and that's not them, um, but... There's no obviously black and white about this for, you know, you know, kids need to see their cousins three times a week. For myself, my personal experience, my cousins were some of my closest friends growing up, but that's obviously not going to be true for everyone. I also had several cousins that were around my age um, and our families lived close for the majority of our childhood. So that, that was nice, but there's no black and white that you have to do it that way. Now, before we get into the the action of what you want to do, I'm also wondering when you say these family makes family members make you upset, what is going on? What makes you upset? Um, again, we I don't yeah we don't have to name names or get into the specifics, but what's going on? Um, it's just basically when it comes to my kids, a few incidents happened which I didn't agree to, and I stood up for it. Then I became sort of like the the black sheep mm. in the family, and I'm okay with it because. I, I know what I saw, and I know what my daughter is, so in, in that sense. And that sort of started to create tension in the family, in the whole mm-hmm. family, in my husband's family, not my family. Well, that's what I was wondering. And, so this uh, is, again, not the, the specifics of who, but from your husband's side. Yes. Okay, yes. and or how how have you and your husband, uh, or what has been the communication with you and your husband on this issue? Uh Tell you the fact, I know he's listening right now, but I'm okay. still upset. It's, it's it's one year, almost like one year, and I'm still upset on him for not standing up yeah. for his daughter. And and I had to sort of do that with his family. Mm-hmm. And uh, and, he, and he knows this. But apart from that, we, we communicate really well. And I would say he marrying him was the best decision because he's so understanding. He he follows you, you and your dad. Uh, CDs and to raise kids and we try to do all the right thing with our family mm-hmm. and we, we are sort of I wouldn't say perfect but we are very good together mm-hmm. and uh, he understands me good. but sort of I'm just a bit upset that he still has not done anything about it but I know yeah. it's, it's past I also know that so, well, it, so yeah well no here's you know the thing about past and um, you know the past being in the past which is true and we want to move past it when we can but if the feelings are still there it's not the past it's still the present as far as it's present in you and it's present in your relationship with him and just expect for you to forget about it or shut those feelings off is not going to work 
I think it's important, you know, you're asking the initial question is about how to deal with these family members or if it's okay if your kids don't see them as much. But to me, the bigger question or bigger issue to look at here is you and your husband and still resolving this um, issue of what you're feeling about how he, uh, what he did or really in a way didn't do and how he responded and still you're saying hasn't responded and have those conversations together about what happened there, what's the expectation from each other, how you're still feeling he can share with you why he maybe didn't say anything. Those are, to me, much more important than even seeing them or not, which is r- related and important. We have, we have talked about it, and we are sort of, we have totally eliminated ourselves from that particular family member, but I feel bad for the reason that he, it's his sibling, and because he's not seeing his sibling because of that situation and I feel that he should talk about it move on and go see him because I, I see the pain in him and it sort of bothers me too because I, I can't stay away from my sibling I have to talk to them sort of uh-huh. once or twice in a week but now when I realize that he's not doing it and so, so there's like a lot of confusion happening that I feel that we should talk about it and then move move mm-hmm. forward mm-hmm. for him not for me and for my for my kids but for him and then so, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that is important to, you know, figure out. Of course, I know you, some of it, you're also projecting that, oh, he's not talking to his siblings and that's bad because I like to talk to my siblings. Maybe he's okay with that. But the thing I'm hearing from you, the unspoken part is you're maybe concerned that he's not, he might not be okay with it, but he's not really sharing that or expressing that. Or does he tell you how he feels about not being in contact? I do ask him. He says he, he missed talking the particular family member and yeah, um, and, and yeah. but okay. he's not and I don't know how to deal with that situation but because I have problem with that member it's not him yeah but, but my other thing is like right but you have a problem that your husband not that he didn't have a pro- doesn't have a problem in general but in that specific instance it sounds like didn't stand up for your daughter and in that way stand up for you yes. too and so that is important to, to still talk about and and Look at it. I know you mentioned you use that word perfect and you, you stopped yourself in a way also. But sometimes when we're in this perfect kind of mindset, we avoid issues as well. We don't really get to the root of them or talk about them because we don't want to have an issue because we want to be perfect and not have issues. So uh, it seems to me like this is still something worth talking about between you and him. Of course, as is always the case, he has to be open to talking about it. Um, but there's a lot of different facets to this conversation. One is you know, him not standing yes, up that you didn't like. One is how you feel about what's happened. Also, you know, does this have to be not the total end, but this kind of distance as it's created? Maybe, I don't know what happened and we don't have to get into it, but does it have to be the end of your connection even with his sibling? Maybe it can be resolved. Maybe you could talk to that person if that's even, you know, possibility. The reason why I bring that up is in all families, but I see it so much in Iranian families, there's a f- one fight and then that's the end of the relationship. You know, a sister and brother fight and now 20 years they haven't talked or in-laws have this interaction and then that's it. We don't do a lot of conflict resolution or okay i didn't like what he or she said or what happened that day doesn't mean they're a bad person and i have to completely write them off we can talk about it and even husbands and wives will feel this way so they might avoid bringing things up because they think if you have a fight it leads to the end of the relationship or something really bad rather than healthy conflict 
is actually a very important part of healthy and happy and strong relationships. So there's also that aspect of the whole thing, which is more outside. For me, more important is you and your husband being on the same page and resolving the things between you, because that's the most important relationship we're talking about here, even him and his sibling, or especially you and his uh, siblings or sibling. Um, but you guys need to be on the same page and okay with what's happened. And it seems like you're still holding on to a lot of feelings about what happened. And I don't want you to go to the space of, because what I could see you doing is you feel something about it, but then you tell yourself, oh, but it's in the past. I should just forget about it. Let's move forward. And then you don't bring it up or you try not to acknowledge it, but then it pops up its head again. And then you're, you're, yeah. you know, the cycle continues. So, you know, we can say put things in the past, but if we're not able to, that usually means we need to address it in order to be able to put it in the past. And so right now it's not in the past of your relationship with him or in your own life, you're carrying it with you. And to me, that would be telling you that it's important to talk with your husband about it again, if he's willing to have that conversation. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Sure. Good luck. It was nice talking to you again. Have a good day. Same. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Sure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamro, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Doctor. Hi. Thanks for calling. Uh, thank you. Uh, I tell you my, the reason of my call, and then uh, please help me to continue the, uh, the discussion sure. because I don't know where to start. Um, the reason I, um, I decided to ring you, uh, I wanted to share my feeling. I have got a, an internal um, uh, anger, and I, I don't know how to overcome with this anger. My anger is not uh, against anybody particularly. And it won't affect my behavior at work. However, I feel so uh, annoying with the system we have got in the UK. I don't want to generalize because I am please. Uh, I don't want to mislead your audience. Uh, this is my personal experience. So maybe other people have got different experience. So I don't want they think uh, this is running all the, over the country. I am living in northeast of the UK. It's about nearly 20 years. And I uh, had a bachelor degree from Iran, uh, chemistry, applied chemistry. I used to work in Iran with my degree. When I moved here, I couldn't find any job because uh, I had to um, use, I, have to, I had to um, uh, refresh my skills, either with uh, language and other skills. And also, I had to work voluntary job, you voluntary job. You can stop me, please, no, anytime okay. you have got any questions. I'm, well, I, uh, I'm going to have questions, I'm sure, but I still want to get the background. So, no, go ahead. Yeah. And um, after the, the four years, I um, managed to find a job. These four years, I was working voluntary in different sections. I found a job, but it wasn't relevant to my um, qualification and um, degree. It was in um, um, the um, council, and it was an administration job. Um, I know what your father would say. I should appreciate the job I got because initially I wouldn't be literally I couldn't I wouldn't be able uh, to have a governmental job in Iran 
with my um, going to mixed party, never do any um, public um, pray. So definitely I wouldn't be able. So I should appreciate. And I was at the beginning, I was appreciating. Uh, eventually, after seven years, I didn't have any progress, any development. Uh, only one grade, I went another grade higher and moved to another um, section of that uh, council. But I still wasn't happy because it wasn't my um, ideal job. And mm-hmm. um, so I decided to go back to my scientific job, which was laboratory technician. What, where I found here in the UK is completely different from Iran. You have to do very basic job, where, whereas in, the UK, in, in Iran, I had to ask my worker or staff to, to, to move the, for instance, um, waste container, big container. Whereas in, in the UK, I had to do it myself. And I wasn't, like, I wasn't able because um, I, w- I reached at that time to age 48, 47, and it was so difficult and I had health issues as well. So I decided to move from that job. I thought better job is uh, if I do teaching. Mm-hmm. I got two degrees here. One is a, a master degree in forensic science and another degree it was in education. Well, you can't believe, Doctor, now I still haven't got my job, my proper job. I am not teaching. I am a qualified teacher. I, uh, when I finished teaching um, uh, training, I managed to find a job in a school, which I love it, but it's, it's not well paid. And I think they exploit me because um, I am working as a laboratory technician three days, and because I couldn't Mm, um, because the income wasn't enough, I asked them, request them if they can um, give me more hours. They gave me more hours as a as an advanced teaching assistant, but they don't use me only for advanced teaching assistant. Every minute they call me for covering classes, teaching, actually teaching, mm-hmm. but they pay me as an advanced teach, um, teaching assistant. And I, I, the reason I've got internal and angry anger because I see my colleagues there, they don't work hard as much as I work. I'm mm. sorry, I use this language, it's, I work like a donkey. Mm. I am really hard worker. They don't do that. And they have got more salary, higher salary. And um, and this is not fair because, yeah. because it's, I am in a very small town. And I don't want to blame only saying um, because they are racist, because this is not true. They are not racist, because otherwise they wouldn't give me a job. But they have got connection. They have got this this corruption system we have used to have in Iran. They still have got here. Mm-hmm. So they, they invited their friends. Their friends invited their friends. So yeah. recently I applied for a teaching job in the same school, but I didn't get the position. Mm-hmm. Because I realized the person who got it, it was one of my colleagues' friends. Yeah. So my salary is not comparable, and I'm struggling financially. So I'm juggling between two um, credit accounts to mm. pay, because the, the work I am doing, my income and outcome are not balanced. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you you shared the internal anger was the way you described it, and I can understand that because 
you feel like something unfair is being done to you. And on top of it just being unfair, it's creating stress and pressure that makes it, it makes you even more angry. And underneath anger, as typically is the case, you have a lot of pain and hurt, which, which also we can hear in your voice, which is understandable. Um, obviously, there's a lot that relates to what you're bringing up. What I was going to ask you is how you understand the situation. And you mentioned um, racism, and I don't know if you feel sexism also. No, no, no. They, no, doctor, sorry to interrupt you. No, I don't think they do racism because okay. I don't think they... The only things I would say, maybe they don't like my accent because they mm-hmm. don't want a, a foreigner to teach their children, okay. with, especially in the village. I, this, this school, particular school, is in village. The behavior mm-hmm. is really good. Uh, hardly you see that in the UK the students have got that behavior, especially in secondary school. You're a lovely student. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, and most of them are from a good family background, so maybe they don't want a foreigner to teach them with the accent, wrong accent maybe, um, or maybe not correct accent to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the reason I am very... Um, very hundred percent. I am sure they have got connection, and they yeah. use the corruption system because my boyfriend. I have to say ex-boyfriend because he's from here, from England, and um, he was working in the education department as well. And maybe this anger only um, affects him because I knew he got his job through the connection as well, and I was so annoyed. Because he was in the team he was working, he was getting higher salary, but he was complaining if they give them extra responsibility. Generally, as I said, I'm talking from my own experience, I found them very lazy. Well, let me. So he was complaining. Yeah. Let me just, if you don't mind me interjecting there. No. But. I, like I said, there's so much going on, and I like I, what I, even when I said racist, I know you were quick to stop that, and I don't know uh, what's going on. I just mentioned what you mentioned, um, but these issues are very complicated because you said, well, it can't be racist because they gave me the job, and, and it's possible race plays no role in what's going on for you, um, and this is also the case in general. We can talk about an individual incident, and someone could say, for example, in the United States, do we know that for sure race was involved in this uh, incident of police brutality. And we can't say for sure in one instant uh, that's happening, but when you look at the statistics and we see certain patterns, we know that race plays a part in police interactions with citizens. So I don't know for sure if that's what's happening with you, that race I agree with or you sex is involved. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, is involved, but it could be. And just because you got the job doesn't mean that because often what they see yeah. when they do research related to race or sex and how it affects job outcomes and, and salaries is that people, for example, might get the job, but they don't get promoted as easily as let's say a man yeah, might get yeah. promoted or uh, someone who is white might get promoted more. And this does happen uh, over and over again. Now, it doesn't mean in your case, I don't know what's going on. Maybe really yeah. there's something about your teaching style that they don't like that is actually about your teaching. I don't know, but it doesn't yeah. mean that because you have the job um, it couldn't have been any of these I, I negative things. Be, and yeah. uh, and I think you have, you know, you talked about an internal anger, anger, but you also have this internal struggle, it sounds like, where sometimes you think, oh, it is racist and sexist and this is unfair. And then you go back and say, no, it can't be. It's okay. And I'm so lucky to That's have this job. True. Yeah. Thank you for understanding, hmm. Doctor. Do you know, this um, 
is inside, internal yeah. feeling. It's just really annoying me because I have seen in nearby us, there is a university, and I've seen some um, lecturer are from Iran, and I keep um, punishing me, no, blaming myself. Mm. Maybe I didn't do my job properly. That's why I didn't get a good position. Maybe they are better than me, and I keep blaming myself. But at the same time, you are right, because my sister lives in London. She got a good uh, position, although her English is not very... um, It's not in the the way that she completely manageable her position, but she got the... she got a good job and well-paid job because um, in, 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 in London, it's quite multicultural and people look after each other, even uh, people as a second citizen, they look <laughs> after each other. Whereas here, it's not like that. Yeah. But the reason I said they are not racist, maybe I am wrong, and because they just keep saying every single job you apply, they say, oh, it's equality and diversity procedure right. we follow. Yeah, and so, I mean, earlier in the show, I talked about the book Race After Technology and how um, yeah. sometimes, and she actually talked about that word diversity. Sometimes, of course, it's used in a good way and it's promoting something, but sometimes it's just said and then there's still the racist or sexist um, system underneath. So it's just like a, a buzzword that makes people feel like they're doing something good or things are fair, but there still might be unfairness. So, uh, could there be racism and sexism that's affecting what you're going through? I think it's very possible and likely. Again, I can't say for sure in your situation it's happening. Um, it does seem like you do feel that, that it's happening, but you have a hard time dealing with accepting that. But also when you express those things of maybe they're better than me, something there there yeah. did seem a, to be somehow that you can be very hard and down on yourself that you can make yourself feel not good enough. And so then you might take this on and then you get mad at them for feeling that way. But again, there's, you know, it's interesting you use that word internal anger, but I hear a lot of internal struggles that you're dealing with as well. That makes it hard for you to just come to some kind of peace of mind and move forward, even if it's not easy. And let me be very clear. If what you're dealing with is discriminatory and it very possibly could be racist, sexist things you're dealing with, that hurts and is very unfair. And I'm not trying to in any way undermine what you're going through and just say, oh, you know, it's happening, accept it, move on. Because that's unfair and it's going to hurt and it doesn't feel good. And uh, I don't want to downplay your feelings when it comes to what you're experiencing, because that is very painful to feel that you're working hard, you're qualified. And because of these external factors that are unfair, you might not get the job you deserve or get the pay you deserve, or even they might treat you differently as an employee and expect that you can do more of the lower type of work uh, and they won't give you, you know, the pay for the higher work you do and and all that. Um, But there's also ways you might be contributing to this. You know, when you say they ask me to do this and I do it, I don't know what your position is like. Sorry, I didn't catch catch their ask. Oh, that's fine. You said, you know, they sometimes, you know, they ask you to do and you work your own words, work like a donkey. I don't know if I'm wondering if all of that is really they force, not force you, but it's very clear you have to do that. Or no, do you sometimes take on you, more? I'll tell you what I meant. Okay. They, they, I am not that type of person to argue. 
So as soon as they asked me to do something, for instance, this afternoon, they told yeah. me, oh, we are short. I was, although I was working as a laboratory technician, I mm, left that job. I prepared everything for the teacher who needed to use the mm, equipment. And then I went to the lesson and I taught. Uh, whereas um, if, if it was my colleague, they would refuse. Well, because that's, they would that's say, the oh, part... I am in my right. other position. I'm not going to take yeah. this. Uh, and that, that's, what, that's what I meant was, you know, there could be a lot going on, that, and I, I can't obviously, we can't be conclusive about it, but let's look at what you are and aren't doing. And so part of what makes you feel like you're working that way, like a donkey, as you put it, is that you're letting that happen too, rather than yeah, saying, you know what? Yeah, true. exactly. So that's the, you know, this is the part where you might be in an unfair system and that is unfair and not okay. But we also want to make sure you're being more fair to yourself that you're listening to what you want and need and being, you know what, I'm working here. They are short. That's on them to figure it out. Um, I have to do my job here. And, you know, I don't know if it also affects your pay and things like that, but you need to take care of yourself. So part of the working yourself too much is that you're letting yourself work too much or you're not standing up for yourself. And that's something that you, it's going to be hard, but can try to work on of, of being there for yourself more. Maybe sometimes they're not going to look out for you, and that's usually the case. They're not going to look out for you, but you have to look out for you. But I don't want people, uh, sorry, I know what you mean, but I don't want people to think I am lazy person. Right, I but, want that, to be but that's, I, I understand. I mean, you probably don't want them to think lazy. You don't want to let them down. There's probably lots of reasons. Yeah. But even think about, you know, and that's that shows how that feeling of being lazy is coming from an emotional place because you just described to me that I work way more than everyone else, but yet you're still worried about looking like the lazy one. It seems like you're not coming off that way and you yeah. aren't that way, but there's this emotional place of not disappointing people or not coming off that way that scares you and keeps you doing too much. And then you do too much and you feel bad about it, but then you get mad at them, which partially it could be on them, but there's a part that's also on you to recognize you're the one that's taking on too much and you're going to have to set those boundaries of protecting yourself. Um, and people who you mentioned yourself, you feel like you're not assertive, tend to avoid conflict. And you might have to embrace that a little bit. And sometimes it's not even just conflict, but a little bit of discomfort. And the only way you, you will grow is that way. Thank you. You open your, mm. my eyes in that way. Uh, yeah. Some, uh, some problem, most problem is mine. I, I am not very assertive and I can't say no <laughs> well, to people sure. when they ask me questions. Well, I don't want you to... Uh, uh, sorry, but I also, yeah. just so quickly, I also, you know, I didn't want you to leave this conversation with the thought is, oh, okay, see, it's all my fault. Um, Cause it's probably, mm -hmm. it's not, I don't. And, and the reason why I'm stopping you there also is because I think you can be so hard on yourself that it's easy for you to go back to that place of punishing yourself. Um, there does seem to be a lot going on with the system and who knows how much of it is racist, sexist. Yeah. There's connections and office politics and all those things that I'm sure are playing a part. But I, what I meant, and you said, open your eyes is to see, well, what is in your control? not to blame yourself, but actually to give yourself that feeling of strength and empowerment that maybe you can make it better. You can't fully change the system. You can't fully change everything, but there probably is more in your control or more things that you can affect or more ways that you are creating the certain situation you're in now, which means that's good news that you can actually change some of those things too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, even when we look at some of the research on things like promotions and jobs, they find that 
men sometimes apply for jobs they're not qualified for, whereas women don't apply for jobs unless they're almost overqualified. So maybe there's ways that, you know, I don't want to say that you have to be falling into the stereotype or acting in this way, but there could be ways that you hold yourself back too. And I do feel some of that in how you talk about yourself, that there's a way that you make yourself feel small or weak or not good enough. And you might be putting that out there both in how you act and also in the ways that you don't try to give yourself certain opportunities to grow or to, to be where you want to be. So on one hand, you want to be promoted, but also you're not sure you deserve it or you think you're better just staying in your own place that you were in before, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that, I, the, my problem is I don't have confidence. And then, um, then when I'm in the classroom, I sometimes say, oh, maybe, maybe I am not good teacher because mm. of my accent maybe um whereas mm, the, the kids are um they, they give me feedback very positive feedback yeah. uh, mm. but sometimes i'm comparing myself with very you know my my standard is high when they ask me to do a job i want to do it yeah um, but yeah 100 percent well mm-hmm, but then that's never going to be 100 percent well or perfect just like if you have students and they get you know, a 93%, I'm sure you tell them, great job. You don't say, why did you mess up that 7%? But it seems like with yourself, um, you're very hard on yourself. And so all these things can tie together because if you expect yourself to be a perfect teacher, you're never going to be. So you won't even let yourself take those certain risks. And I think you're right. At least I'm glad you also recognize that, that you feel in a way not good enough or are so hard on yourself that you just tell yourself you're not able to do these things. But then you get upset yeah. because I think you do recognize, you know what, I'm, I'm as good as those other teachers that are getting those positions or maybe even better than them. But still there's this internal inner critic, inner voice that's telling you I'm not good enough. Something's not right with me. Something's wrong with yeah. me. And so there are some deeper things for you to, to look at and work on. I hope you will and, and, and continue to work on those things. And like I said, I think it's unfair if the system is treating you in a way that doesn't uh, base it just on what you're doing. And we know the world is still that way. Um, and I don't yeah. want to just undermine those things or say, oh, those things don't matter. But as much as possible, I want you to see what you can do to first love yourself even more, be kinder to yourself, and then create that on the outside by giving yourself even more opportunities, whatever you can. Maybe it's still going to be unfair, but better than what you have now or the best that it can be or, be, you know, better at least, you know. Yeah. In previous po- uh, call. You mentioned about Iranian culture. Mm-hmm. You said um, Iranian people. Um, in, you generalized. Uh, you made a comment, mm-hmm. general, general comment. Um, they are. They tend to give up, or they tend to. Was that right? I, I, did I get it yeah. right? Yeah. Well, actually, they tend to give up, or um, this is how I am. When uh, when I got applied for this job, uh, the, um, as a math teacher for. Um, the same school, and then I didn't get it. And another person who was friend of my my colleague's friend, she got the job. Uh, I gave up, and I uh-huh. said I'm going to leave the school, although I love the school, and yeah. I applied for another job. But meantime, because I was short for the money, um, I was doing so many different things on the weekends, uh-huh. evening. Um, I am adult tutor on the evening. I am um, working as an interpreter during the uh, weekend. So I just push myself too much yeah. to be able to overcome the problem. Right, but, but also, but I want you to see how some of the problem is a little bit more in your hands than you realize, and you help to 
in some ways created by saying, I'm not good enough for that thing that will make me more comfortable. And so I have to struggle in this way. And so I know it's not that easy and it's easier said than done, but I want you to be aware of that. And yeah, the giving up, I especially was talking about when it comes to relationships and avoiding conflict that we feel that if we bring up something, it's going to lead to a fight and then the fight leads to the end of the relationship. So we avoid bringing up the conflict or bringing up the feelings and the issue and we just run away from whatever it is, whether it's a relationship yeah. or maybe a job. Um, but we have to try yeah. to face that and say, you know what, we can have conflict and we have to be able to share what we don't like and what we're upset about. And if that then leads to things not working out, well, that's okay, but I can't just accept that I'm going to stuff my feelings in. And I think that is your tendency is to just, I can handle it. I can hold on to it. I can deal with it. But then you get angry and upset and that comes out. And so that's something to be aware of. You know, I'm, I am way past the commercial break, so I do have to go, but I do hope you'll think about some of the things we talked about be a little kinder to yourself, which is itself a long process, and also be kinder to yourself in what you give yourself as far as opportunities and also things that you allow yourself to say no to um, when it comes to giving yourself more time and space and not okay. taking on everything. Okay. Thank you so much. Sure. So nice talking to you. Best of luck to you. Take care. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, doctor. Sure. Have Thank a good you. night. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That brings us to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, just wanted to share some thoughts in a way related to the last caller and also things that came up earlier in discussing the book Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. Uh, so the caller and I were discussing what she'd been going through and she wasn't sure if racism and or sexism played a part in her career and things that were happening or not happening in her um, work situation. And as I mentioned her, I don't know if for sure it, it relates to sexism, sexism or racism, what she's going through. We do know that sexism and racism af absolutely affect job outcomes and even just getting jobs and salaries and all sorts of different factors. So we definitely can't ignore that. And also it's not something we should just accept as a fact and we do want to combat that. So uh, as I talked to her, I did want to try to balance that to not just say, well, it doesn't matter, that's the system, live with it, because I don't think that's fair and right and also should be expected that you're just not going to have feelings about something unfair. The feeling of anger is actually there for us to recognize when we've been wronged in some way, when something unfair has been done unto us. So, of course, it makes sense when we're in an unfair system, you're going to have anger about that. You're going to feel that. And so it's something we shouldn't undermine in others and even in ourselves, recognizing that anger. And what's hard to balance with that is this other side of, well, what can we do based on that system? Because it could seem like we're ignoring the pains of the system or ignoring what the person is going through. And especially as someone talking to someone else, um, that can feel even worse, and especially if you're not someone who's subject to that. So the sexism that she might be uh, dealing with in her workplace, that's something I wouldn't be able to understand or at least relate to, uh, having that male privilege, where that's the more dominant or the one that's more preferred, so to speak, or default when it comes to a lot of work situations. So I, I do even try to keep that in mind when I'm telling 
her about that because I, I know I can't know what it's like to experience that. I can try to understand it. I can read about it. I can hear about people's experiences, but truly understanding it, I won't know. And so trying to find that balance of let's look at the situation. The situation is unfair. There's a lot of hurt there, but let's see what you can do can feel like you might be undermining it as well. So I think that balance can be hard. Um, but as I said to her, by bringing up what's in her responsibility, it's not to say that the system isn't unfair. So it's not saying, well, no, if you're actually struggling, it's all your fault. Um, but whatever the circumstances might be, we can recognize that, recognize our feelings, but then seeing what we can do. And I say that for her or for anyone going through it for out of love for them, out of caring for them, compassion for them, that I would want for them to be in the best circumstances they can be that they can create for themselves. And that's something that actually they deserve to give to themselves in the best that they can. So it's not ignoring what's happened. It's not blaming them for whatever situation they're in, but recognizing what is it that is in their control and what can they do with that. Um, and that's really all we can do, obviously, is change what is in our control. Of course, we can and should focus on changing the system as well. So that's another area where that balance comes into play, where I don't want to say, well, that's just a system, live with it. Well, it's like, no, that is the system and it's unfair and let's do something about it. What am I doing about it? What are we doing about it? Let's take that very seriously in a bigger picture um, mindset of what we're going to do, but also Currently, what can you do as an individual in your life um, to make it the best you can? Because as we saw with her, and I, I do want to be mindful of talking about her since she's not here to also um, share her side or to either agree or disagree with what I'm saying, but there were some things that she recognized she might be doing. She might be holding herself back or seeing herself as small um, or as she was able to acknowledge not being assertive so she wouldn't share her feelings or having a hard time saying no, maybe being concerned of letting be people down, that people pleaser side could be playing a part. Now, of course, um, this also can be embedded in the racist or sexist framework that you might feel that you have less slack than someone else. So maybe a man can get away with more or do less. So also that's uh, not to be ignored or neglected, that there isn't always the same standard. So sometimes you know, just saying, oh, you're a people pleaser or you are not being assertive. It might be that someone doesn't feel comfortable or really might genuinely not have the same rights to disagree or say no or ask for more leeway or time off or whatever it might be than someone else. So that also um, I do want to recognize as well. Uh, but let it's always about seeing what we can do because when we look at our lives, there's some things, whatever the circumstances are, that we can do to make things better. You're in a certain situation, what can we do? And it's not to blame. I think that's something we don't want to blame victims, but it's actually, as I said to her, hopefully as a tool of empowerment, of recognizing, you know what, actually there's things I can do to make it at least better than it is now. I can't control everything. It's not my fault, this situation, but what can I do to bring about some better result for myself? So out of love for myself, what am I going to do? To make things better because we often will see that as much as things uh, a lot of things are out of our control whatever is in our control we want to take care of that so um, you know i'm studying for the test and i don't have the book that everyone does have and that's not fair but what can i do with the resources i can get a hand of 
And yes, it's very unfair that I wouldn't get access to that book. And that uh, analogy is not far at all from what many people do experience even here in the United States where not everyone has the same access to education and educational resources. And so tomorrow I'll go to, to Skid Row and get to tutor children who are experiencing homelessness um, at, with the organization that is School on Wheels. And I was thinking about it today and thinking about some of the topics I would talk about and how I'm, I'm so grateful for that organization. I'm so grateful for what they do. But I wish there was really no such thing in the sense that there wouldn't be homeless children to tutor because there would be no homeless children, that the um, there would be no need in that way to have these less fortunate, and even she talks about that in the book, um, what that means and how even the fortunes are spread about, to have that be an issue. And so the systems that are unfair, we don't want to ignore them and just think, well, it's all about personal responsibility. I think actually it's part of our responsibility as individuals, as citizens, and people who have different levels of privilege to make sure everyone does get equal opportunity and things are fair. So we have to keep a big picture approach while also keeping our individual focus on our lives as well. Um, sexism and racism are unfortunately alive and well in this world, and we could choose to ignore them because they're uncomfortable truths, but um, we'd be ignoring people's pain and ignoring our own responsibility to do something about it. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you to all the callers and listeners and to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulak. We have a wonderful day.